1: Hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Lauren Dempster, a lecturer here at the Law School at Queen's University, Belfast. Today I am delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues, Professor Louise Mallander and Professor Kieran McAvoy. Louise and Kieran are going to have a conversation exploring the role of amnesties in transitional justice. So, Kieran, do you want to kick us off?
0: Sure, thanks, Lauren. So, Louise, as you know, the listenership for this is postgraduate students and others who may not know much about the topic. So, for a general uh, listenership, what is an amnesty?
2: I think that's a good question for any listenership because there's no universal international definition of what an amnesty is. And the term is used differently in different states around the world. But for me and most academic researchers, at, a, at its core, an amnesty is a legal measure that seeks at a minimum to remove criminal liability certain categories of crime or alleged offenders. So what this means is amnesties are tools that can be used to stop ongoing legal proceedings or to prevent legal proceedings being opened. Beyond that, beyond that core function, amnesties can sometimes offer a number of additional forms of leniency. So that could be releasing convicted persons, removing criminal liability, removing administrative liability, or in some cases even erasing criminal records. So the impunity granted by an amnesty could be broader, but there are also some amnesties that actually impose penalties on amnesty persons. So that could be where, in order to get an amnesty, people have to submit to conditions that would apply time-limited bans on them serving in public office or would restrict them, for example, owning weapons. So the functions of an amnesty can be can be tailored very much to different specific purposes but the core function remains in that they are intended to remove some form of criminal liability. Okay
0: and how how prevalent are these amnesties Louise?
2: Well, I have for decades been looking at amnesties around the world, and I have found that since the Second World War, about 700 different amnesties have been introduced, and I don't think that list is comprehensive. So there are very few countries in the world that haven't had an amnesty. Most of them have used them multiple times, and so I'd say they're very prevalent, particularly in contexts of conflict and peace.
0: Okay, 700. So they're still extremely popular then, obviously. What kind of role do these amnesties generally play in peace processes or processes of transitional justice or conflict transformation?
2: Well, it depends very much on the timing in which they're introduced and what types of groups the amnesty is intended to benefit. Most international attention on amnesty goes in amnesties that are granted to combatants in a conflict, particularly non-state armed groups. And the purpose of amnesties for these groups can depend on where in a country's journey from conflict to peace the amnesty is being used. So if an amnesty is used while a conflict is ongoing and a peace process is not in sight yet, generally what a state is trying to do is to encourage individual rebels to surrender and disarm and perhaps provide some form of information on their former comrades. So the amnesty in those settings is used to weaken opponents and to try and shift the balance of power within a conflict. But if we start looking at peace process settings, the purpose of an amnesty changes considerably. So, for example, amnesties could be used as confidence building measures to encourage parties to take part in peace negotiations. So what I mean here is that non-state armed groups could be fearful of turning up to sit at a negotiating table if they think that they could be arrested when they get there. So an amnesty could be used to try and encourage them that the state is negotiating in good faith and to address some of their fears that they might have about taking part in the negotiations. If negotiations proceed and an amnesty forms part of a comprehensive peace agreement, Often there, the amnesty is seen as some form of negotiated settlement, a compromise to encourage the different parties to sign up to an agreement on the understanding that if they face prosecution and punishment, they might be reluctant to to sign up to the agreement. Later on, after a peace agreement, amnesties are used in different ways often to try and advance particular objectives of a peace process, whether that is to encourage rebels to disarm or to encourage individuals with information to participate in truth-recovery processes. So the purpose of an amnesty can be quite different depending on when it's used. And I think one thing to bear in mind is amnesties aren't just for combatants. So in a lot of conflict settings, they can be used for other categories of people. So it's not unusual for amnesties to be used for political prisoners who've been held without charge during the conflict. And so for these individuals who often have been subject to some form of arbitrary detention, the amnesty in itself can be a form of reparations. Similarly, amnesties are used reasonably often for helping uh, refugees and displaced persons return home by removing legal obstacles to their return. And this, this category of amnesties overlaps particularly with amnesties for draft evasion and desertion because... In conflict situations, where there's being forcible conscription of individuals, people may flee the country or flee their area rather than be conscripted into the military. And so removing these legal penalties can be a necessary prerequisite for enabling them to return home.
0: Okay. One of the, uh, I mean, you've talked about about, uh, refugees and non-state armed groups and other actors who've benefited from these. I suppose before I started working with you, which is some time ago, as we know, um, (laughs) my my image of an amnesty was something that kind of nasty dictatorial regimes. I'm thinking, you know, military dictatorships in Latin America in the 70s and 80s. And the kind of the last act of the outgoing uh, dictator is to introduce an amnesty, a general amnesty, for loyal torturers and toenail pullers and so forth just before stealing all the gold from the presidential palace. And so that, for me, in my head, I guess they were the embodiment of state actor impunity, particularly for for, for nasty regimes. I mean, is that still the case where you have amnesties that are geared to do precisely that, to to reward those who have been loyal to a particular uh, political or military regime?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, amnesties are just one legal tool that can be used to perform that function. And That is the image of amnesties that was prevalent for a number of years. I think particularly because a lot of the... Turn towards criminal law within human rights law that occurred from the 1980s was inspired by developments in South America during those transitions. So the types of amnesties you're thinking of formed the image of what people thought of uh, as an amnesty. So yes, those those forms of amnesties did occur there, and they do still occur in other parts of the world. But what I found in my database is that only about 19% of amnesties introduced in conflict and peace settings are granted only to state actors. So you're thinking that quite a minority of amnesties have performed that function.
0: Okay, so they have a a broader range of of applications then. I mean, just one thing that, uh, given, I mean, the context, you're setting this up rightly as a, a tension between, on the one hand, the advance of human rights and you know, sometimes we, we hear talk post-Second World War of this being uh, the era of human rights and the triumph mm-hmm. of human rights and so forth. And, and you would expect in that context where, where human rights have become more prevalent, where they become part and parcel of both international and domestic legal regimes, you would expect the space for amnesties to be narrowed. Why, from your perspective, has the international legal community not simply just outlawed amnesties? Why is why hasn't there just been um, a kind of, okay, this was something that used to happen, but it's a pretty unpleasant business. Why, let's just get rid of, let's make it uh, illegal under international law. Why has that not happened?
2: Well, I guess the first thing to, to bear in mind here is the international community is not a homogenous entity. It's made up of lots of different actors, so states and intergovernmental bodies. There's international non-governmental organizations. And all of these groups come to questions of amnesty with different understandings of what an amnesty is and its role and different views on what its legal status should be. So this, thus far, these groups have not even agreed an international definition of an amnesty, much less a ban on their use. There's only one treaty so far that explicitly mentions an amnesty, and that's Additional Protocol 2. To the Geneva Conventions and that encourages states to grant the widest possible amnesty at the end of civil wars. And more recently during the negotiations leading to the International Criminal Court and then again in 2006 in the negotiations leading to the International Convention on Forced Disappearances, the negotiating parties did grapple with this question of whether those treaties should include a ban on amnesties, but they couldn't reach a resolution on the question. It was a very divisive issue in the talks and the resulting treaties are silent on, on, on amnesties at all in the end. And I think for me, these divisions among different actors within the international community are reflective of the reluctance of states to bind their hands in terms of the use of amnesties in all instances. And I think they're also reflective of their, a view that amnesties can, in some circumstances, help states move beyond violent conflict. And, and I think what's also interesting from here, and you think, when you, recognizing this, that states continue to use these things and continue to view them as, as important, tells us something about the state of international law. Mm. Because in both those elements undermine the idea that there is a customary prohibition on the use of amnesties because states still want to use them.
0: Because sometimes, I mean, if you, I, I think at, at times when you and I have been doing research over the years on this, one of the things that struck me, amnesties are quite a useful tool to, they're obviously a practically useful tool for states trying to make peace, but they're also a useful tool intellectually for seeing the politics of human rights. Because there are times when if one only read human rights documents, if one only uh, looked at people who, who see the world through the human rights prism, you would almost at times think that amnesties were contrary to international law. You, you know, And at times it looks to me slightly that the, that the clarity of that position is overstated, and, and that speaks to the fact that human rights discourse is is a, is a place of contest, it's a place of dispute, and sometimes the people who are arguing, particularly around this question of, of amnesties and impunity, overstate the, the, the clarity of the legal position. Am I right in, in, in that uh, assumption?
2: Uh, I guess um, among the human rights community, what, while it often seems that there is a, a clearer view on, what, on amnesties, when you dig a little deeper, there's a lot of uncertainty around the edges of what this looks like. And that's always been the case. Going back to the 1970s and 80s, debates among human rights actors showed a lot of different perspectives on on the use of amnesties. And today you see divergences among different groups. So for the UN, for example, would say that you can't have amnesties for international crimes and gross human rights violations. But that extension of the position to gross human rights violations isn't necessarily replicated by other actors. So there are different views. And there are some human rights institutions, such as the International Criminal Court last year in the al Gaddafi case, that said international law on this question is very unsettled. Mm -hmm. So what we see is different parts of the human rights community speaking at different, in different ways, about what the law on this is. There are certainly some actors who state a very clear, the existence of a very clear rule of international law, saying there can be no amnesties for international crimes and gross human rights violations. There are others that say international law on this point is emerging and they've been saying that for for 20 years this rule is emerging it hasn't emerged yet and given the current geopolitical situation it doesn't seem likely that it will emerge anytime soon but you know these are important distinctions in the language that's used here about the law and i think given how important amnesties are Given how fundamental they can be to reaching peaceful settlements, and given that they can be used in ways that can further human rights objectives, in terms of truth recovery, in terms of reparations for victims, etc., I think that space for flexibility remains important. And so, it's I think it's human rights actors who are grappling with this question should be should be explicit about what this what the law is on amnesties and what the law isn't. At
0: the moment. A bit more honesty, maybe, in human rights <laughs> yeah. discussion around these things. Yeah, one of the—I mean—you're pointing there on the relationship between amnesties and truth recovery as a potentially very useful application of arms. Just explain to us how that that generally works. You can use mm. uh, uh, like the experiences of any particular jurisdiction, but just tell us how that works. What is the relationship between amnesties and truth recovery?
2: Well, it's a complicated one. I mean, the word amnesty shares its etymological root with with amnesia. So amnesties have often been thought of as a tool for public forgetting of crimes. But it's not really that straightforward. You know, to simply forget something would be to do nothing about it. Where you enact a law to amnesty crimes, you are actually acknowledging that there are are persons who are alleged to have committed crimes and that they could be criminally liable for that. So an amnesty itself is an acknowledgement that this truth has taken place. But going beyond that, amnesties don't actually prevent investigations outside of criminal prosecutions. So amnesties could take place in other for, such as inquests or inquiries. And In in several cases, amnesties have been used to encourage offenders to tell the truth about their actions. So this could mean that in order for someone to get an amnesty, they have to either in writing or in person, perhaps in a public hearing, tell the truth about what they did in the past. And that can be very important. Using amnesties tactically to encourage perpetrators to tell the truth about their actions can be useful for yielding information that may not be available from other sources and it can be a way of countering denial by revealing the truth in the words of those who are responsible for the crimes and this in itself can be important for providing acknowledgement for victims and promoting reconciliation.
0: Okay and you mentioned earlier Louise uh, your amnesty's database mm-hmm. um, for our listeners Louise is probably one of the most yeah. preeminent scholars in the world on the question of amnesties. You've been working on this database for a while, I seem to recollect. <laughs> Since you're my PhD supervisor. So. <laughs> so you've got 700-odd amnesties in it. Uh, two yeah. questions. First of all, mm-hmm. what's what's its purpose? Why? Yeah. What was your thinking behind the mm-hmm. creation of this enormous database mm-hmm. of amnesties throughout the world? And secondly, tell us uh, what's your favourite amnesty and, and why is it your favourite? So. <laughs>
2: um i guess its purpose for me has changed over the years when i started out as a phd student i think i was i was struck like yourself about what to, the dominance of the idea that amnesties look like south american ones in the literature. I'd come to the study of law from political science background and so I found myself sympathetic to legal ideas that amnesties are tools of impunity and should not be permitted but also sympathetic to a more political science position that negotiations are necessary. You need to reach peace agreements and and so I didn't know what the right answer was and I didn't feel that South South American form of amnesties was necessarily representative of the ways that amnesties looked. So in making the database That was my my intellectual curiosity. I just wanted to understand better how amnesties are used and what they look like. But in making the database available, and uh, a version of it has recently been published online with the help from colleagues at the University of Edinburgh. And what I hope to do with that is provide a tool for other researchers and for policymakers and conflict mediators or human rights activists to really understand how amnesties are used a bit more. And so some of the ways in which I think it could be useful are that a big database like this that records hundreds of cases around the world can help us identify and analyze patterns in amnesty design over time or across regions or in specific political contexts. Like you mentioned earlier, thinking that amnesties come mostly from dictatorial regimes. So that's something we could have a look at, you know, how many, what proportion of amnesties are granted by democratic states. And it is a minority. It does tend to come from, you know, quasi dictatorial or fully dictatorial contexts. But that can help us understand when amnesties are likely to be used and also to try and unpick some of their status within customary international laws as I've already mentioned. What I think it's also useful for is that looking at in detail of what amnesties around the world looks like demonstrates that they have a lot of diversity and different characteristics that can all shape an amnesty's legitimacy and capacity to contribute to sustainable peace. And why this is important to me is that I think it should help move conversations beyond simple assumptions about the consequence of an amnesty for a peace process, saying amnesties have X consequence, and move it towards a position where we're thinking about amnesties with these particular attributes may have these impacts on on peace. So it gives us a finely grained picture of what different types of amnesties do or, or which ones might be more negative or which ones might be more positive. I think what's also useful is that it can provide models to conflict mediators in societies that are grappling with trying to end an armed conflict. And for me, this is particularly useful in trying to offer them design choices that push them away from amnesties that grant impunity towards measures that have a range of conditions and legal effects that can help the amnesty contribute to the peace process, as well as support efforts to meet victims' needs.
0: And your favourite amnesty? <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's, that's a tricky one. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not fully sure I have a favourite. For instance, because I'm not sure that any of the amnesties I look at in and of themselves are perfect. You know, they're mm-hmm. often, they are political tools introduced in difficult times, often as a result of a political compromise. But I think that when I look at them, what I like often is design attributes that occur in different amnesties that I find legally creative. And which I think represent a good faith effort to use the amnesty to support the needs of victims and contribute to peace. And so there are there aren't many amnesties that particularly include conditions around victims. Some of the ones that do that, I think, are the um, amnesties that are tied to truth commissions or community justice initiatives, such as those that were used in South Africa or Team Let's Day.
0: Okay, so the linkage to the truth recovery. I mean, final question, and Lauren, I'd like to bring you in on this one as well. question of amnesties has been a controversial one in the Northern Ireland peace process. Maybe uh, start with you, Lauren. Um, you're the uh, world expert on the disappeared process here and the commission that was established to recover uh, bodies who are disappeared by primarily by Republican paramilitaries during the conflict. Maybe for our listeners, would you just explain what function the amnesty or non prosecution element of that? Process had, and then we'll broaden the conversation to amnesties and um, more generally in the Irish peace process.
1: Yes, sure, Karen. So, in the context of the recovery of those who disappeared during the conflict in and about Northern Ireland, the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains was established in 1999. It was established by legislation passed in both the British and Irish parliaments and basically that legislation set out this limited immunity. So information given to the commission for the purposes of locating the remains as it disappeared couldn't be used in any form of prosecution. So basically what we had in this situation was the immunity really acted as an incentive for those with information regarding the location of burials to bring that information forward to the commission. Uh, It's been very successful, I would say. So at this point in time, the remains of 13 of the 16 disappeared, have been recovered. One of those sets of remains was found prior to the establishment of the commission. But it's fair to say that we would not have had that level of recovery of remains without this limited immunity.
0: So you don't think it would have worked essentially as a mechanism unless we had this uh, level of immunity as part of the process?
1: No, certainly I, I don't. I mean, you had a group of people within the Republican movement or individuals within the Republican movement who had this information relating to burial site locations. And really, I would question what would incentivize them to bring that forward, bring that information forward if it was going to result in their being prosecuted. So in my view, without something like the legislation that we had and without something like this sort of limited immunity mechanism, that information wouldn't have come forward. Another thing to flag with regards to disappearances in Northern Ireland for anyone who is unfamiliar is that the situation wasn't like some other contexts where the disappeared are buried in mass graves. These There were a small number of disappearances to begin with. And there were 16 people disappeared here and the majority of them were buried in individual graves. In a couple of instances, two individuals were buried together. So you wouldn't have been able to do thing something like you saw in the former Yugoslavia where you could use aerial photography to identify mass graves because we just didn't have burials off that scale. So, there was a need to bring that information from those who were directly involved in burying the remains in the first place.
0: Okay, thanks Lauren. Final question to you, Louise. I mean, we've had different versions of amnesty or sentence reduction, immunities and so forth as part of the peace process in Northern Ireland. To bring us right up to date, as you'll be aware, there's currently before Parliament a bill to introduce the presumed uh, amnesty for soldiers who served overseas and the current government have said that they will give matching protection for um, British soldiers um, who served in Northern Ireland as well. So a highly controversial issue. What's your own view, Louise, on the utility or otherwise of an amnesty in that context, in the context where we find ourselves in 2020?
2: Well, for me, amnesties are valuable and legitimate where they are granted to advance a peace process or to meet the needs of victims. The proposals to protect British soldiers from prosecutions have been granted over 20 years into the Northern Ireland peace process. Most commentators view that they could be damaging to the peace process rather than advancing it. And I don't think there was anyone that would suggest that this would help victims. So I don't see any positives in terms of what I would usually see as the um, a useful role. That amnesties could play in fact i view that these sort of meca- mechanisms been introduced so late on are entirely negative negative. and i will say it's very very unusual for any states around the world to be thinking of restricting prosecutions in this manner so far into a peace process i uh, with my massive database of amnesties <laughs> around the world i can find very few examples that do this and none of them are democratic
0: Okay, that's very interesting. And in putting that in, that in that broader international context, mm-hmm. thank you both very much. It was a really interesting conversation.
1: Thank you, Kieran and Louise. That was a really fascinating conversation, and I really enjoyed uh, being part of it. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Thank you to Louise Mallander and Kieran McAvoy. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Lauren Dempster, and this was LawPod.